0: It is a joy and an honor and a privilege to be here. This church has been with Mandy and me, and we've been with this church for well over three years now, um, if not four, and it's been an absolute blessing to know Jamal. Um, He told his story of how we met, so y'all know how we got connected. Um, Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, your word, which needs no um, introduction One theologian said, it's like a lion, we don't need to defend it, just unlock the cage and let it defend itself. Please give me the grace and the words and the clear thinking to make your word come across to the hearts and minds of these hearers, so that there's nothing in the way. If there's anything standing in between, any. Miscommunication or misinterpretation by your Holy Spirit, which dwells in your children, make it clear. Please, God, do something great in our midst. I pray that I can add to the canon the list of all the sermons that have already been preached here and build up this church one brick at a time. I pray that I might lay that brick well today. Build through me, Lord. Work through me and do something great in the midst of these people. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. When you got it, say amen. And we're starting in verse 8. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. I'll be reading from the ESV, and I think it's up on the screen. Hebrews 13, verse 8, reading through verse 14. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, Which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his word. Amen. You may be seated. So here's the situation in this text. It's about 70 A.D., almost 2,000 years ago. At this point, Christianity's been around for just about 40 years. The children of the very first generation of Christians are just reaching adulthood, and they're starting to take leadership in the house churches in which they were brought up. The letters written by Paul, the first missionary, to the churches he planted, which would eventually become part of the New Testament, letters like Romans and Ephesians and Galatians, these letters are in heavy circulation and are serving as the core documents of the, uh, for all these new Christians to help them do church and live out their faith these letters are also helping them to distinguish Christianity from the Hebrew laws they've been accustomed to for a very long time. And these letters are helping them to focus on Jesus as the center of their faith. The Bible is not about laws, regulations, principles. The Bible is about Jesus and any resulting laws and regulations and principles that go through Jesus. Every book of the Bible orients toward Jesus, and anyone who teaches or says otherwise has not understood the Bible rightly. Another reason Paul wrote these letters, so much of the New Testament, is because the early church was getting confused by false teaching. Sometimes the best truths come out of confronting errors, and this is what a lot of our New Testament is. People were believing errors, believing lies, and so truths had to be articulated and rearticulated and put into written form and circulated, and that's what we study. Galatians is all about refuting a lie, and as we're going to see, the book of Hebrews is very much the same. Things needed to get cleared up. Just as soon as Christianity started, people began to devise ways to manipulate it and turn it into a money-making scheme. Human beings are smart. If there is something that makes human beings come, people will look at the crowds and say, "I I could teach this too, but I could teach it and make money from it. That's the idea. It didn't take long. As soon as Christianity started and thousands and thousands of people came, to listen to the words of the Christian faith, other leaders saw these preachers who were preaching the Christian faith and said, wait, they're not making money from it. If I do what they do and use the same kind of words that they use, I can get money from it. It didn't start in 1950. This stuff was way before TBN. Jesus died... Somewhere around 35 A.D. All right, so look at the timeline here. Jesus died somewhere, historians guess, between 33 and 38 A.D., sometime in that range. And Christianity, of course, spread thereafter. Remember, not long after Jesus died, Peter preached the first sermon. And what happened? 3,000 were saved. Now, that's 3,000 that were saved. How many people think were there? This was a huge deal. That's why the moneymakers wanted to make money off it. Crowds come when you talk about Jesus, but add Jesus to money, and they'll come. Not even 20 years had passed before Paul wrote some of his first letters, not even 20 years had passed before Paul had to write letters to some of the new Christian churches because they had already gone astray. Less than 20 years. Jesus died somewhere between 33 and 38 AD, Galatians was written about 53 AD, not even 20 years, and people were already getting confused about what it means to love Jesus. They were getting messed up by laws and restrictions and regulations and false teachers. False, ego-driven teachers were rising up from inside the churches, twisting the Bible to say what it doesn't say and creatively mixing it with pagan philosophies to pollute people's minds, to get money from them, to draw them into their camps, and to pull them away from Jesus. Because people were being dazzled and polluted by false teaching, they were abandoning true Christianity just as it was taking root in the world. So what do we need? A book of persuasion. A book of persuasion. This is where the book of Hebrews comes in. It's a book of persuasion. It's an expertly written letter delivered to Christians in the first century to call them back to Jesus, circulating around. They didn't have Twitter and Facebook or the internet, but they had letters that people would copy, and the letter of Hebrews was copied and spread. It was probably written sometime just before 70 A.D., not long, about, or not long after the death of Paul. No one is certain about who wrote this letter, but it was clearly written by a very educated man who had a close relationship with Paul and had become a robust and widely respected leader in the early church. This was the man. We just don't know who the man was, but he was a man. He was, he was that guy. The entire idea of Hebrews is basically to show why Jesus is better than everything that was pulling the early Christians away, better than earthly high priests, better than Jewish dietary restrictions and ritual foods, better than any old covenant institution, better than persecution, and in this passage in particular, better than slick-talking false teachers So let's dig in. Verse 8, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So remember the context. The book of Hebrews is convincing people that Jesus is better, superior, the great high priest, better than what the false teachers are giving, better than the benefit foods can give people. He is better. And so he makes the statement, he's the same yesterday and today and forever, So before warning of the false teaching that is spreading through this church, this church of Jews, the author mentions Jesus' immutability, which is his sameness over time, as a preventive measure. Okay, so what what does this have to do with anything? I'm getting sucked in by false teaching, manipulated by people who are smarter than me and more articulate than me and know what I want. And you're telling me that Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Well, that's great. That means he gives me money yesterday and today and forever, right? He's the same. Oh, what does that have to do with anything? It's a preventive measure. The idea is this. If you are finding significance in Jesus, who will always be there, the true Jesus, you won't feel tempted to find significance in false teaching, which comes and goes and can't offer any guarantees. It's hard to fit any false teaching in your mind if it's already filled to capacity with the true Jesus. Jesus offers things to us that no one else can. Most significantly, the distinct pleasure to be had in worshiping him and trusting him regardless of the bank account. He has always made this unending unique and superior pleasure of His presence available to us, and it will always be there for us to enjoy. His gifts, His gifts, among which are His kingdom, and His security, and His righteousness. I didn't say money, and His joy. I didn't say cars, and His assurance. I didn't say a house. All of these good things, that are part of being a Christian, that are guaranteed to those who trust in Jesus, these things will always be there as well. What the author of Hebrews is saying is why would you go anywhere else? It's a preventive measure. Jesus is always there. His gifts, superior pleasures, are always there, so don't get led astray. Now, there's something crucial Crucial to note here. Not only is Jesus' constant sameness, that eternal pleasure and satisfaction and joy he always offers, a good thing to remember, it's in fact the only thing that can keep you from being swayed by false teaching. It's not just a good memento, it is the only thing standing in between you and manipulation. If you don't stand on Christ as he has revealed himself in his word, you won't maybe fall, you will fall. You are guaranteed, if you do not trust in this immutable, constantly the same Jesus, you are guaranteed to be manipulated by false teachings. Just think of the scenario. If you only have a general understanding of who Jesus is, Barely know your Bible and never let people into your life and the only people that you do let into your life are people that tell you only little bits and pieces of the Bible that make you feel good. If that's your only spiritual diet, that's as deep as it gets. No concept of God's wrath, no concept of his justice, no concept of his sovereignty, nothing like that. And you turn on the TV and it's Saturday night and you're tired or maybe even Sunday morning after you're hungover and and you see a slick talking preacher talk to you and tell you that Jesus wants to bless you and make you rich, you don't stand a chance. You're going to get knocked over. You will be manipulated. It's a guarantee. It does not matter how smart you are, how educated you've been. It does not matter. You will get manipulated. That's why the author puts this verse here. It's a preventive measure. If you don't trust in Jesus, who is the same today and yesterday and tomorrow, you are gone. You're gone. If you're not soaked in the truth, when the fire comes, you will be burned. Now, I have to pause here. One, because I'm getting sweaty. And two, because there is an immense danger when we listen to stuff like this. Our hearts have this dangerous, annoying tendency to pass over these kinds of words. Words about Jesus being our satisfaction and taking pleasure in Him and finding our identity in Him as metaphorical words. As if it's all just feel-good talk that means nothing in real life. As if it's some sort of Christian theater and I'm a performer and Jamal's a performer. As, As if this is just a theater thing and you're going to go home, and it's not going to be real to you. That is deadly. Don't assume that. This could not be further from the truth. All right, you want convincing? This is a fact. Jesus is a literal human being right now with flesh and blood right now who is God right now, and he literally has always been God and always will be God. He literally created the world, the ground, the, 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 the dirt and the trees. He made it. That stuff is real. Do you think it came from something that's not real? If the dirt and trees are real, how are you going to say that their creator is not? He created this world and not only that, he entered it and he felt pain and discomfort in it and was killed in it by people he made. He died an actual death and rose from it. We see the places he walked. One of my music clients went to Jerusalem this past month and saw the Garden of Gethsemane. She saw the place where Jesus was born. She gave me a piece of wood from a tree very near his birthplace. Does not get more real. Now, when you pray, did you know that he literally hears your prayer with actual ears, physical ears. He is listening to you right now with this. He is real. And anyone who has faithfully walked with Jesus, and there are a lot of them in this room, can testify that he changes the hearts of those who trust in him. And they can testify that they don't desire what they used to. They have new desires and longings which get consistently fulfilled as they are intimate with Jesus. This stuff happens, people's personalities, their moods, their passions, what they do when they're alone and no one's looking, that changes for the better. Do you think that comes from nowhere? That comes from something. How do you take a person who loves sin and they don't love sin anymore? That's not just human exertion. That is the power of a very real and working God. This is not fairy tale ish. This is not metaphorical. This is not Christian theater. So, you, I, we have to fight this temptation to see Jesus and the pleasures he gives as metaphorical or fairy, fairy tale ish. As Sunday inspiration for Monday nothing. Have to fight it because Satan will quickly pounce on your uncertainty. You know how they talk about he can smell fear, he can smell fear. You know what Satan can smell? Uncertainty. You have uncertainty about this? He's waiting for the gap. He's waiting for that that hole in the armor. That uncertainty. Jesus is a metaphor. Boom, you're gone. People go to church for empty inspiration and to get rich because they haven't been taught who Jesus really is and what he expects and the true riches he offers and the fact that he was just like us. That's exactly what happened to people in the early church. They weren't immersed in the truth. They heard the truth a few times, but it wasn't their diet. It wasn't their regular meal. It was here and there, but what they were really listening to was false teaching. What you listen to and believe the most is what you're going to become. They weren't soaked in the truth, so they got burned by lies. False teachers and Satan were working hard on them, and you think they've stopped working? They're working today, trying to pimp Jesus for money, for their egos, for everything except for the glory of God. You'll hear a lot about Jesus, but you won't hear about Jesus, the true God of the scriptures, full of wrath and mercy, full of love and anger towards sin. Just because you hear the name Jesus does not mean you are hearing Jesus. And guess what? Satan and false teachers and people who are manipulating us, they have an advantage What's their advantage? They're working with the flow of our sinful hearts. When, when, when Jamal and, and Nate and Macio get up here and they call you to take up your cross and die, they're asking you to be like a salmon and swim upstream. And when so-and-so, you know who I mean, tells you that Jesus wants to make you rich, they're going downstream. They're working with your heart. We're working against it. So it's doubly difficult for us and doubly easy for them. Satan from the outside, the heart from the inside, no problem. That's why people fill up the churches. Use Jesus to get what the heart wants. So we have to be vigilant. Not only are we being pulled away from Jesus from the outside, we're being pulled from the inside as our hearts relentlessly swing towards sinful idols like a compass needle swings north. Who's ever had a compass before, ever held a compass? no matter how you turn, what happens, the needle swings toward magnetic north, somewhere up north pole where there's polar bears and all that, and it swings this way. No matter what you do to it, that's the the heart. Always swings toward sin, no matter how much pressure and force and power we push against it. So what we need is not to uh, go the direction our hearts are going. We need a big chunk of metal, that metal being the power of the Holy Spirit, to put on top of that compass... So that magnet won't swing north anymore. So it'll start swinging in the direction of godliness. That's what we need. That's what Forest Baptist is trying to give. A big, huge piece of godly metal to put on top of that compass and swing it in the way it should go. But I'm afraid if you turn on the TV, you'll have people who tell you things that go just the way the heart wants to go already. I like Jesus. I like money. I can have them... I, I could be rich and wealthy and be my kingdom and uh, never have to suffer. I'm going to be completely healthy anytime I ask for it. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. Listen to this. We have to work hard to push our sinful hearts back to Jesus for restoration. An unwillingness to do the hard work of treasuring Jesus is the first step toward idolatry. An unwillingness to do the hard work of treasuring Jesus is the first step toward idolatry. You don't want to work hard, you'll get worked hard. (laughs) Embrace the everlasting Jesus. Let's go to verse 9. So after this preventative measure, Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever, Embrace Jesus, don't get caught up, but embrace Jesus as he is in the Bible. Then the writer moves on to this statement. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So as we've mentioned already, the church the author was writing to was struggling with false teaching. Now to understand this false teaching We have to first understand who these people were, the people who were being manipulated, and what their lives were about. These people were Jewish and were just coming out of hundreds and hundreds of years of Jewish laws and customs and traditions. To them, the high priests were the celebrities of their little world, the high priests who stood at the altar and took their sacrifices for them on a weekly basis and sometimes more frequently. These guys were the men to them. And adhering to Jewish food laws, among other customs, was a huge part of where they found their meaning. They were an agrarian society, meaning that most of them spent much of their lives growing plants, uh, fruits and vegetables, and tending animals, and they bartered animal and plant produce in the marketplace for a living. They were probably influenced by Greek philosophies and other pagan worldviews, which focused on higher knowledge and spiritual enlightenment, but in a very non-Christian way. So where's the connection between them and us? Like us, they wanted to be successful human beings. They wanted to get their sacrifices right. They wanted to get their crops right. They wanted to get their money straight. They wanted to have enlightenment, inspiration, no difference, right? Different means, but the same ends, They wanted to have success, whether through achieving higher knowledge of God or peace of mind or the respect of others. Now, the slick-talking, influential, false teachers among them knew these things. They knew what these people wanted very well. They knew what they valued, what they dreamed about, what they were afraid of, and they devised a set of diverse and strange teachings that combined all their wants to get their attention. Now these teachings had the look and feel of Christianity. We know that obviously because they were able to get into the churches pretty much unnoticed. So they were similar to biblical teaching. They had all the key words, but they changed some things. Does this sound familiar? But they were false. Now, historians aren't sure about the exact nature of these strange and diverse teachings, but we do know that they had something to do with eating certain foods. Now, from what I've gathered, these teachings were likely a form of Christian and pagan syncretism, meaning Christian ideas, pagan ideas mixed together. As in, I love God, I want to be rich, God wants me to be rich, never heard that? I'm just curious. Um, what they did is they probably combined some Jewish food laws with pagan philosophies that promised some sort of higher knowledge and worldly treasure and intimacy with God, as long as the church kept giving money to buy these foods and fueling the teachers' egos. The idea is taking God and Christianity and manipulating it as a means to get what you want. I give you your fruit to get you your higher knowledge, which you're never going to get, but I still give you your fruit. You give me your money to build up my ego and my little kingdom so I can keep giving you fruits, and that's how I'll get you close to God. You've got to have faith, my brother. The worst part is... So many of the new Christians had no idea what they were being taught. Uh, they had no idea that what they were being taught was different from authentic Christianity. These teachers were slick. People have been pimping Christianity ever since it was born. Now, I've been dancing around it, so let's go right to it. Won't name names, but the prosperity gospel. They had their problems, we have ours. And the prosperity gospel is a huge one. Christianity has not been abused, abused, pimped, manipulated, or distorted on a grander scale than what the prosperity gospel has done to it. Volumes could be written on the damage the prosperity gospel has done in America in our lifetime and the havoc it's wreaked across the world. Now, one Christian leader articulates the prosperity gospel this way. I love this definition. Prosperity theology is a perverse distortion of the gospel that transforms the message of Christ into a message of secular salvation through wealth and prosperity. So it's not being saved by Jesus. It's being saved by wealth and health and prosperity. That's heaven and not the heaven of the Bible. Scholars of the movement have studied why it is that poor, disadvantaged, and disenfranchised people seem so drawn to a false gospel that leaves them poor but makes their preachers wealthy. Let that sink in. They seem to find encouragement and hope, even a source of pride, in a pastor who preaches prosperity and lives himself or herself in ostentatious wealth I Means showing off even as they contribute their own meager funds to them. The definition continues the Bible is clear in warning against false prophets who preach false gospels and those who would use spe- spiritual authority for their own wealth. The world is scandalized by the false promises of prosperity, and believers in Christ should be just as scandalized about this false promise. But Christians should be far more concerned about the eternal consequences of prosperity theology. It's false promise of salvation through financial abundance of health and wealth through the exercise of seed faith. Plant that seed, brother. Missing from the prosperity gospel is the message of salvation through faith in Christ alone. A salvation that makes every believer unspeakably wealthy in the grace of Christ, but does not promise earthly riches or unblemished physical health. Listen, listen. Prosperity theology is different from the false teaching the church in Hebrews experienced in 70 A.D., but it's similar in the sense that it takes what the world loves and then uses God as a device to get what the world loves. It mixes Christianity with worldly philosophies to manipulate people into thinking that God's primary purpose is to turn human beings into filthy rich kings and queens. Do you really think that God in all of his passion for his glory has a primary motive of making people God? They said that you have to eat food to attain higher knowledge. False teachers today say you have to have faith to get money and favor from God. They use the Jewish law, they referring to the false teachers of 70 AD, they use the Jewish law out of context to pressure poor people to give money to the temple. Today's teachers use Malachi out of context to pressure poor people to give to the church. If, if, if faith alone gets you prosperity, why do you have to keep giving to the church? They said their status as high priests showed God's favor on them so that people would give them money and attention. And the false teachers of today say that their wealth is proof of God's favor on their ministry. So people would give them money and attention. You really think a, a, do you honestly believe that having money means that God thinks you're doing a better job than someone else at loving him and serving him? That's in Second Hesitations 4:12, by the way. That's not a book of the Bible. The Judaizers, the false teachers of the day, they said that eating foods would cause God to bless you. The false teachers of today, y'all can fill in the blank, say that faith in God will make you prosper financially and healthily. 2,000 years makes no difference for the human heart. The nature of our false teaching is different, but the heart behind the false teaching is exactly the same. False teachers with egos existed then and they exist now. People's hearts back then were fickle and sinful and could be manipulated by people who spoke in inspirational and convincing ways, and nothing has changed. Therefore, Hebrews' admonition applies to us just as directly and desperately as it applied to them. Now, here's the worst part. This is is as bad as it gets. This is the worst part about getting manipulated by false teaching. Any distraction away from Jesus is dangerous and horrible, but a distraction away from the true Jesus that uses Jesus' name is especially dangerous because people think they're okay and walking in favor and pleasing God when they're really not. I heard Jesus in my message today, I'm good. No, you are not. Read your Bibles. No, it, it, would, it would take nothing if people were just biblically literate. If they, if they took the time to read their Bibles, they would realize that nowhere does Scripture teach that God's primary desire is to make you healthy all the time and rich all the time. And it never happens anyway. Why do people keep going to these churches if it never happens to them? If I keep giving money, I'm 70 years old, I've been giving money for 50 years and, and it never the seed never grew, brother, the seed never grew. Why do they keep going? Because these slick teachers are so good. Oh. If part of your spiritual diet consists of listening to teachers like this, then I guarantee you whatever you're listening to is not where you're going to get from these three guys. So you'd better pick one. Jamal on Sunday, Creflo on Monday. All right, false prosperity and true prosperity. You want to know what true prosperity is? You want to know the difference between false prosperity and true prosperity? I'll tell you. Here we go. False prosperity says God wants you to be rich. True prosperity says God promises you a future and a hope in heaven if if you trust and serve him. He wants you to be godly no matter how much money you have. False prosperity says if I have faith, I'm going to have my breakthrough. True prosperity says because of my faith in Christ, God chose to break through my sinful chains and save my soul. False prosperity says God wants to give you his favor. True prosperity says God already gave me a savior. False prosperity says When praises go up, blessings come down. True prosperity says, My praises go up whether the blessings come down or not. (laughs) False prosperity says, If I want it, I'll name it and claim it and pick up my payment in Jesus' name. (laughs) True prosperity says, If I cling to the name of Jesus, I claim him and him alone as my treasure. False prosperity says, a man actually said this quote, verbatim you have access to all money, power, and possessions through Jesus. You are God's because he made you in his image. I'm gonna load that up. True prosperity says we are God's children. We belong to God. He made us, and we're His chosen people, a royal priesthood, rich or poor, His holy possession fashioned in His image and prepared for good works, not for our glory, but for His. And while we're on that very topic of Godness, the God-man Himself, the man who was God, Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself taking the form of a servant. So Creflo, I don't know which god you're telling me I'm supposed to be, but Jesus himself was willing to set his glory aside to die for broken sinners like you and me, so I'm not going to try to take his godness away from him. Let your heart be strengthened by grace. Let your heart be strengthened by grace. This is what we see in the second half of verse 9. Instead of embracing false promises and setting your attention on the hopeless inspiration of slick talking false teachers um, who care more about money than about your soul, let your heart be strengthened by grace. Empty foods and empty promises and empty inspiration have not benefited those devoted to them. That's what we see in verse 9. It's of no benefit. So instead, draw deep from the grace of God instead of empty promises. Don't find your significance in your financial situation, in your health, or in hope of a better financial situation or better health. Find your significance in your salvation. Find your significance in your salvation. Look, they even got two S's so you can remember. Significance, salvation. Find your significance in your salvation. You are a child of God. You cannot be richer than being a child of God. The poorest Christian is richer than the richest non-Christian. Why? Because God has given you, if you are a Christian, a position of righteousness through your faith in Christ? you want to roll over your 401K and get millions, or do you want the righteousness of God through faith? you want to be rich for 50 years or rich for eternity? I'm not saying that being rich is bad. I'm saying that wanting riches is bad. Wanting money more than Jesus is bad. God has given you a future in heaven if you are a Christian. God has given you His Holy Spirit to comfort and encourage you. God has rescued you from the eternal torments of hell. He has done all these things at Christ's expense and not because of anything you or I have done. He's freely chosen to love you and make you His child. How can you ask for more? Let your heart be strengthened by these things. If you're going to be poor for another 60 years, then be poor and embrace Jesus in that and trust him and trust that you will have incalculable riches in glory. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. Verses 10 through 12. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is a tough Set of verses, and this is the one that took me the longest to figure out to try to understand. How do we get from foods and grace to altars and animals? What is the author doing by jumping to a statement about sacrifices? Now, remember that Hebrews is a masterfully written book by a thoroughly educated author who was a genius in the Greek language. He's not playing around, he knows exactly what he's doing. I think setting up a picture of irony. The high priests, here's the picture, are gathering people by droves to themselves with their slick talk and their ridiculous food laws that they promise will make people closer to God, closer to what they want, higher knowledge, and they're manipulating God's word. They're conducting sacrifices and carrying out what they perceive to be their duties for the Day of Atonement, which we know more familiarly as Yom Kippur. This is the most holy day according to the covenant of Moses. This would have been like Easter Sunday at a prosperity church. We're talking explosion. It's a day where all the false teachings and food laws and empty sacrifices and empty promises would have gone into overdrive as the false teachers gathered what would have been tens of thousands of people to the temples. This particular day, however, this is the kicker according to the Jewish law in Leviticus 16, would preclude or exclude all the temple participants from eating the meat of the sin offerings. They came and gave their sin offerings to the altar, and what would happen is afterward, they would have their meal. And I smell that food right now, it's tempting me. They would have their meal after the sacrifices, and that would be a source of food for most of them. But on this day, the most holy day, Yom Kippur, According to Leviticus 16, they were not allowed to eat the meat of the sacrifices. No matter how good the sacrifice was, they weren't going to eat the meat of that sacrifice. you see where we're going? Here's where the irony kicks in. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God. But on this holy day, according to Jewish custom... Jesus is tossed aside like any other worthless and burnt animal, rejected by the false teachers. The Jesus of the Bible, to them, is a worthless and burnt animal who does not promise what people want. While they sit in their posh temples, fiddling with special foods and their worldly accolades, they throw away all the food they find useless. And the symbolism the author of Hebrews is drawing is Jesus becomes useless to them because he doesn't amount to money or worldly acclaim. The real Jesus, the Luke 9, take up your cross Jesus, doesn't fit in to their system. He doesn't promise to make people the kings of the world all the time. He doesn't promise unlimited wealth and health. And so they throw Jesus, according to custom, the sacrificial lamb, outside the camp. They can't stoop so low as to eat these leftovers taken outside the city and burned in a refuse pile on this day. For their Levitical law prevents them from doing so. So Jesus is left to suffer on this lowly altar beyond the gates, despised and rejected by men. People love Jesus until he's the Jesus of the Bible. But we have a right, children of God, to eat from this altar that they can't stoop so low to eat from. And this meal is the bread of life, the salvation Jesus offers. This meal is not special foods of the Judaizers or money or earthly accolades, but it is salvation from sin and access to the eternal pleasures of God's kingdom rooted in his glory The author is telling us you're strengthened by grace, by embracing Jesus and feasting on his endless and different pleasures. The false teachers have their own altars and their own ways of doing things, and they've tossed Jesus outside the camp, but that's exactly where we need to be, outside the camp. The Jesus that they reject is the Jesus who will save us and bring us home. We have the privilege of feasting from this true altar of Jesus' sacrifice for us on Jesus himself and not on the vain promises and empty inspirations people have attached to Jesus. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. Towel break. Some water too. In Hebrews chapter 13, um, verse 13, we see a statement that is doubly symbolic, double symbolism. It says this, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. When they say outside the camp, They are talking about the symbolism of the camp of the Judaizers where they had their temple and their sacrifices. They threw Jesus out. And then we are also talking about the camp which refers to the worldly system that includes Jesus, doubly symbolic. There is a worldly way of looking at Jesus that is immensely different from the Bible's view of Jesus. And in this worldly system, this camp, this this popular camp that views Jesus in a certain way, Jesus is an example, he's a mentor, he's a teacher, he's a philosophical giant, He is a symbol of service, he's essentially Gandhi 2,000 years earlier, can't save the soul, can't change the heart, can't bring people to heaven, but is instead a token for inspiration that I can look at so that I can add to my list of relics and religious icons to live however I want to live. If Jesus influences me to make it better, then yeah, I'll let Jesus in. But as soon as you tell me this little Gandhi, 2,000-year-old Gandhi, tells me that I have to take on my cross and call him God, and change my life, and be different in private, then no, I don't want that Jesus. But that's the camp Jesus. That's not real Jesus. That's fake Jesus. Jesus. The Jesus that this author tells us to go to is not like that. He is God incarnate, fully God and fully man. The same Jesus through which God created the world, we learn in Colossians 1. The same Jesus who will trample the winepress of God's wrath with fury and vengeance, we learn in Revelation 21, I think. This is Jesus God. Who demands allegiance to him. And the the, the 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 reward of that allegiance is heaven, untold, incalculable blessing with him forever. This is what I have to look forward to. I want to go to him outside the camp, outside what's comfortable, outside what 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 P. Diddy says Jesus is, and I want to see Jesus the way he really is and bear whatever reproach, that means I get all the hits, that means people say things about me, that means that people don't like my views of Jesus, I get the reproach, and it's worth it. Because 50 years of pain is nothing to an eternity of pleasure. And so I go. I go to him outside the camp. Why do I go to him outside the camp? Why do I embrace the biblical picture of church? Why do I listen to my brothers and sisters and have them speak into my life? Why am I transparent about my sin? Why do I dig into God's word to know Jesus better, to model my life after him, and to make him Lord of my life where my every thought is filtered through, does this glorify him? Why do I go to Jesus? And why am I willing to take the reproach, all the negative side effects that come when you do Christianity the right way? Why am I willing to go through that? The answer is in verse 14. For here, here, we have no lasting city. We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Some sociologists have suggested that over 100 billion people have ever lived on this earth. And more accurately, more precisely, sociologists today know that approximately three people are born every second, just under three, and two people die every second. We are coming in and out of this world like sand in an hourglass. If you are 50 years old or older, then statistically speaking, you probably have 20 to 30 years left to live. 20 to 30 years. And then you will be in a better place, I pray, I hope. If anything does not, if anything communicates the transience of this world, meaning the temporariness and the fleeting nature of this world, I don't know what could communicate it more than those statistics, that we could die at any minute that there are upward of 10,000 life functions that are happening like a car all at the same time to keep us alive, and if something went wrong in one nerve or one blood vessel, it's over. I don't know what else can communicate that here we have no lasting city. We have to open up our minds to get out of this small perspective that we are given, this small, man-centered perspective kingdom of man, little world that we're in, where we build castles that break down. Who, who in this room, room knows who, um, who Handel is? George Friedrich Handel. One. and I, I, Oh, two. Okay. I expected that out of those two. <laughs> well, guess what? He was Katy Perry in his day massive star. Who knows him now? Less than 450 years later. No one. And yet, we're big on ourselves because we want to build a kingdom and be known and be great and build a lasting city and a lasting temple. If people don't know who George Friedrich Handel was and even less know who Bach and Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart and Mendelssohn were, These were rock stars, these were huge, these were Twitter followers in the millions. If if people don't know who they were, why do we want to build our lives and make our reputation? The great odds are, we will be forgotten. The great odds are, people will not know your name. And that is not a bad thing. It just goes to show that we are not meant for glory, we're not meant to be eternal, we're not meant to have a lasting city. We are here to know and enjoy the glory of God and to spread it, to die, and then to be forgotten so that our legacy of children and grandchildren will do the same thing, and then they die and are forgotten. And we do all that to seek the city that is to come. I had one friend tell me one time, I'm really sad that I uh, never had a boy. He had four children, all of them girls, and he's like... I'm really sad. I'm like, brother, you got four beautiful girls who love Jesus. And he's like, well, you know, my family name stops. I'm like, what, you, you want, what, the, wouldn't you rather that your daughters have a legacy of faith than that your family name given to you on Ellis Island will, will continue? It was given to you by other men. And you're more concerned that your family name continue? Be happy that your daughters have a legacy of faith. It's not about our name or our kingdom. We have nothing here to claim. We have only the rewards and the pleasures heaven offers as our treasure. I am willing to not listen to men who are going to manipulate me to thinking that I should be rich and healthy all the time and that God exists to make me a king. I am willing to not listen to them. I am willing to trust in the authority of of our church and then to listen to the word of God preached as the word of God and not to be manipulated. I'm willing to go through the reproach of believing a Jesus whom the world does not love because I love the city that is to come. I am willing to go through it. You have to ask yourself when you go home when you struggle this week with relationships, when L G E is too high because we had a n- terrible winter, when, when, when the credit is down and when the rent is up, you have to ask yourself, are you willing to trust in Jesus even if that stuff never changes because you have a greater reward and pleasure awaiting you? Are you willing to make your life, the mission, the meaning of your life, that others would know and cherish Jesus through you and that your family would have a legacy of faith? Or is your life simply about getting yours and getting big and being your own king in your own kingdom that's going to pass away and fade away like the ants that that your car drove over the other day? Transient, no lasting city. Are you willing to give yourself away, as we sang earlier, completely to this Jesus to not tickle your ears but to press your ears to the word of God are you willing to go through that this is the challenge on us and I pray that these challenges today have been one brick on several bricks added to a whole set a canon of bricks just a building that you can run to and say I know the truth I know the truth that these pastors have preached, I pray that this can add to that and strengthen our faith, simplify our faith so that we want Jesus alone. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word, for the book of Hebrews, for whoever wrote it, whether it was Barnabas or Apollos or Luke or Clement, whoever it was, thank you, God, for their service to the king, for putting these words together, for making them clear, for giving us a road map and for showing us that Jesus is indeed better, better than special fruits and better than food and better than empty promises and slick talking men. Thank you, God, for this mountain of truth that we have to stand on. Give us the resolve to build our lives and lifestyles around you and not allow you to be mixed in with other idols. Help us, God, by your Holy Spirit and by the community you've built into this church. Help us to serve and hold up one another. When one is down, the other comes to help. Please give us grace. And I pray that if there is anything unclear in this message, that it would be uh, resolved and uh, straightened out by your Holy Spirit in the hearts of the hearer so that you can bring clarity and understanding and better thinking. Um, Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. Uh, I don't count it as a right, but a privilege to get to preach your word uh, in front of your people. Thank you for Jamal and Maceo and Nate and the leaders of this church as we've worked together, Lord, to serve you. Um, Bless, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen.